Hey up and welcome to the Temple of Bleh. This is a conversation with Paolo D'Alessandro. Paolo was the VP of International Marketing from the year 2000 through 2004. So he jumped in with the label at the time where things started really exploding, which we'll hear all about in this conversation. So in this particular chat, I am very much a leaf drifting down a river of wisdom. It was very, very interesting to hear Paolo's experiences and perspective on, on the label. I think he kind of understood the angle I was going for in terms of the, the landscape of information I try and extract from these conversations. But for that reason, I think you'll enjoy it. Strap yourselves in. One, two, fuck shoot up. As we know, Roadrunner as an entity, it wasn't an accident. And some people don't know it wasn't an accident. People, I think some people think that it was a fluke that Slipknot and Nickelback and Jim and all these people like got to where they got to. But I'm, I think I just refuse to allow that to be the narrative. So I'm, I'm, I'm talking to everyone, I'm janitorial staff all the way up to you know presidents of other companies to try and figure, try and unpack what it is that Roadrunner did so well and how it did it so well because one, it's a compelling, it's a compelling way to educate people as to what the music industry was like. It's a cross-generational story because Roadrunner isn't geographically centric. It's not genre-centric specifically. I mean, it's rock and metal, but there's new wave British heavy metal all the way up to metalcore. It's a massively vast, it's a vast story. Um, but also I, as a younger man, need to be able to administrate better metal for my generation. So I'm asking the best how they fucking did it. So that's where we're starting. And that's the foundation of this project. And that's like the ethos of the project. And so thank you for <laughs> picking up picking the phone. <laughs> um, pleasure, let's, let's start at the, the very start there. So your introduction to Rodan, you came in through CNR, didn't you? Before we go there, I, I think, you know, I think I have an answer to your question. You know, it wasn't a fluke. It, it's called flow. That's what it's called. Mm -hmm. You put a certain amount of people in a room and throughout the years, the people that have come and gone have sort of, um, you know, there, there's been sort of a natural selection, if you will. Right. Mm -hmm. And the love for the music, and the love for this incredibly powerful independent force amidst, you know, years where if you worked for an independent label, you were the poor sister. You didn't really, you weren't, you weren't really working in the industry if you weren't working for a major label. Mm -hmm. And the underdog, the power of the underdog, you know, everybody left, they, they left us alone because nobody believed that we could achieve what we set out to achieve. But you put all these people in a room and, 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 and it's magic, it's flow. It's because one feeds off the other. And, you know, no matter, and it's not always easy. It's not, it's not all, you know, it's not a bed of roses. You fight, you, you disagree, you, um, you make mistakes. Um, but ultimately you get to this point where it's, it's almost like you have to leave it alone and let it do its thing, you know? And we'll, we'll get onto the specific questions that you have, but allow me to, give, to, to share this memory with you. I, I, I remember as, you know, very, very distinctly this moment. It was an international meeting in, 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 in Narden, which was the, the, the headquarters just outside, 20 minutes outside of Amsterdam. 
and you know, uh, Silver Side Up had exploded. You know, you you couldn't get away from how you reminded, from how you remind me, and um, all the territories were at the table. UK, France, Germany, all the Roadrunner offices were, were there. And everybody was screaming because they wanted more money, more money for budget to do this, more advertisement, more of this, more of that. What are we going to do? You know, it was just, it, it was almost, you know, we hadn't seen anything of that, of that power ever before. Mm. And, and obviously the one who was shouting the loudest was always Hank Hacker, who was the, the, the chairman of the, the, the general manager of the German office is a wonderful guy. I, I deeply, deeply love him and respect him. And he was, a, he was the loudest you could ever hear. And, and I just, at one point, I just went, guys, just, just stop. Just all stop for a minute. And the room went quiet. And I said, and I said, I have an idea. Let's do nothing. Just Stop. Stop. Stop doing anything. We're at the tipping point. The one thing we have to do now is not fuck it up. <laughs> and, and that's, you know, you know, here's a room of, full of people who are exceptional professionals, but who in that moment had the again, you know, the, the, the collective sort of knowledge and the collective power to go, do you know what? That's exactly what we need to do is not fuck it up, you know? And so, sorry, this was just a, a, an interesting memory to, to sustain, you know, your question. So no, it wasn't a fluke, but it was definitely, it was definitely a flow. We, we all worked together almost as a collective force. It was very bizarre. It was very, I've never experienced anything like that ever again. Just so you know, I mean, sorry, your question. No, do do not apologize anyway, because the the questions themselves are more of a headspace of my own education thus far. So every time you come in with a actually, can I let's railroad and have a have a, a conversation about this? And my education takes one step further, and that <laughs> anecdote is really, really, really interesting to me because I think a lot of this extends not necessarily to Roadrunner, but to a lot of things in life in general. Flow and workflow are absolutely critical, and it's down to you're only as effective as your slowest component, right? So that's true. And th this is this is in everything. So. For example, if you work in an organization, organization of 15,000 people, your workflow is going to be drastically different from someone with 100, who's working in a, an organization of 150 people. And so I think one of the nuts I'm trying to crack with Rudder as well is the infrastructure side. Because for a label to be effective and to stay ahead of the curve, as Roadrunner did, you need to have a response time, which is like that. And as we turn yes. into like, like the turn of the century and, and, and the digital revolution, the shape that that workflow takes is, is drastically different. But also the communication, which is what you're referring to there in terms of like all the different, uh, John Sally referred to them as opcos, which is the operating. Yes, we call them opcos, operating companies, yes. Yeah, I, yeah. To John. I haven't spoken to John in a long time. If you speak to him again, give him my best. We, we, we work really well together. He's a really good dude. Um, so I think you, 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 you were asking me or you wanted to ask me how I got involved into all of this. You know, we're, we're, Correct. Yes. Okay. Well, I am Italian, as the name suggests. Um, and I was working in Italy in the late 90s. Uh, 
for an independent label called Flying Records. Okay. Uh, and it was primarily a dance and house uh, uh, label that started rap music in Italy, domestic Italian rap. They were the oh, first cool. ones to start that. But they also had an import business and a distribution business. And the current president of, uh, of Universal Music Italy was the head of the distribution company, of the distributed label. Sorry, I should, I should rephrase that. Yeah. And, um, and, and Flying Records was importing and distributing uh, pretty, pretty big labels at the time. Yeah. Uh, and it caught the attention of a Dutch company called Arcade. Because Arcade at that point, who was, who was making millions, they were raking millions in compilations. This is, this is the late 80s, yep. you know, don't forget it. It's, it's 90, well, it's mid-90s actually, it's 95, 96, 97. Um, and so Arcade was making compilations. They were the first ones to start buying old catalogs. So all of a sudden they reissued the entire catalog of Chicago uh, on CD, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, and they decided that they were going to expand by acquisition. So they started buying labels left, right, and center and open and opening offices left, right, and center. And to, rather than open a, a, a brand new company and a label in Italy, they thought, oh, we're, we're going to buy flying records. So they came in and I was part of the negotiating team on the flying record side. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the deal didn't go through long story short, but it didn't go through. Um, I, I think the Dutch got scared when they started looking into the books of an, of a, of an Italian company from Naples. But that's a, <laughs> that's a side, that's a, that's an internal joke, but, um, and so they, they decided they weren't going to buy the label, but, uh, so they walked away from the, from, from the negotiations. And uh, the day after they walked away, I get a phone call from, um, I get a phone call from the, um, from the the, 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 the the VP of International, who was at the table. And he said, look, you know, we're, we're not going to do this for, for reasons that, you know, you may or may not have kind of got an idea of. Mm -hmm. But we still want to operate a company in Italy, and we liked how you conducted this. Would you like to come work for us? Cool. And I said, hell yeah. <laughs> because at that point... You know, the, the writing was on the wall. Flying eventually went bust about a year later. Um, and so I, I moved over to our kit and I set up CNR Music Italy. Right, okay. And it, and it was me and another person who now is the head of A&R for Sony Music Italy. And he, he and I just, we, we were, you know, we had a little office inside of the distribution warehouse. Uh, it was distributed by an independent distributor who's still in business. And we just started working the CNR catalog, which was again, you know, it was it was catalog already back in the day. It was like you know Alan Parsons. It was, uh, you know, it was Latricia McNeil. It was you know the Wu Tang Clan stuff. It was you know the Chicago catalog. It was all that kind of stuff. And and so here I was just you know doing my thing, and um, and it's now two thousand ninety nine. 99 or 2000, I'm going to say, I'm going to say 99. Mm -hmm. And I get a call from Marcus Turner, who I had no idea who he was. And as like, you know, hi, I'm Marcus Turner. And I just wanted to let you know that uh, I work for a company called Roadrunner. We just bought 
arcade. And I went, oh, okay, so what happens to me now? How far into like, the well, world are you? How long have you been there at this point? Uh, three years. All right, okay. Two and a half, you know, two, two and a half years. Started in 97, the CNR Italy. You settled so, in. Settled in. We've, you know, we do small stuff. It's a small indie, you know. Italy was a B market at best, but they wanted it there. And it was an opportunity for me. And that was that, you know. Mm. Um, and and uh, and so Marcus says, well, you know, come, come to meet him and, and meet us there. So January 2000, I'm at meet him. And the initial thing was that when Case bought Arcade, the 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 initial announcements, you know, and and I, I remember this meeting at Medem where he and Nico Hrusebuk, who was the the CEO of, of of Arcade, announced that this you know this merger was happening and that Roadrunner was going to be taking over, but that you know the Arcade people should should feel completely comfortable because this was going to be a co a co-CEO thing and right. Nico was going to continue to do his thing. And I just looked at this thing and I thought to myself and I, and Marcus could be a testament to this because we spoke about it later. I, I at that point, I, I'd never met case in person, right? I, 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 I've only, you know, I've, I've only seen him in, in, in public uh, once. And I look at this thing and I go, this is never going to work. It's not true. You know, it's impossible. You know, it, it find me a company where the merger doesn't just you know one of the two doesn't take over the other for it just it just doesn't happen. You know, Sony yeah. BMG, wow, that went really well. You know, it's like so so you know it's it's now it's now the end of two thousand. Roughly, it's, you know, sort of September 2000. I've done my thing. You know, we continue to work with this co-CEO thing. And then I get this, I get this band on my table called <clears throat> Toy Shop. And it's a Brazilian band. And I, and I put it on, I put the CD and I go, the hell is this? What is it <laughs> What is this? I mean, it's a cute little song, but what does this have to do with Roadrunner? Yeah. You know, mind you, in the meantime, FYI, my first official Roadrunner Italy, Italian label manager gig, I go to Gods of Metal and I meet with Slipknot. Sweet. <laughs> right? So I just come, I just came back from Gods of Metal and spending time with Slipknot to then play Toy Shop. I'm like, just what the hell is this? And so anyways, I'm like, oh yeah, whatever, you know. And I'll tell you what was a fluke. What I'm about to tell you was a fluke. Sure. Because, well, you could argue that, you know, it happened because I, as a label manager, you know, my job was also to, you know, try to disseminate music out and see what we could do with it. And I had a few advertisement company um, um, contacts my my sister. Well, she's she's 
we're not re- she's not my real sister but my my her father is my is my godfather right and and we her father and my father were friends in school and primary school so she's she's like a sister to me okay she worked at leo burnett and and she had a bunch of you know advertisement contacts so i i said listen you know can you i want to plug some music over to and lo and behold i get a i get a call back from from a music supervisor going we we we'd like to license this song for a, for a um uh for a, for a, for a bath um product like a you know <laughs> and and badidas yes badidas and um and I went great sure you know let's do it yeah so we get the thing going we get the license together And then back at the time I I I went to the distributor and I said do me a favor let's put this out as a single right because it's going to go on TV so let's let's put it out as a single let's put a sticker on it that says you know TV old school this is this is how you did it back in the day you know you yeah. stick a sticker yeah. on it and it says you know from the TV commercial badidas blah 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 and then I thought nothing more about it it was just another day in a label manager's job nothing special you you lucked out because some supervisor put his hand up and goes actually I like this but you did nothing you well it's not true you you sent it to him so you did your job mm-hmm. but you know the stars aligned and and all of a sudden i'm charting this record out of nowhere you know and i get another call from marcus and marcus goes did you just chart toy shop in italy and i went yeah i think i think i did <laughs> and marcus said you have to come, you have to get your ass up here case wants to meet you so they fly me over to amsterdam and at that point you know um cases like how did you do this and i said i i i just did you know it just this is what i did i told him the same story Mm-hmm. and and in typical case he went oh okay you know that's great you know that's keep doing what you're doing and 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 you know and and off i go you know and um about i think another 6 months later or something like that at that point it's becoming clear that the arcade integration into roadrunner is going to be bloody okay and obviously they're reviewing the arcade infrastructure as they should right and they're deciding where to cut costs where to make efficiencies this is what you normally would do so i get another call from marcus and at that point we'd met at meetem we got along the badidas thing had happened you know blah 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 um and marcus goes look paolo uh you know there's we're 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 going to we're going to shut down the uh the the Italian operation it doesn't make any sense okay there's there's we were were you know at that point we'd moved distribution over to Adel you know they're going to take care of it there's a there's a product match we you know there there's a, and here i am thinking okay i'm going to get my ass fired now mm-hmm. um uh, you know because and and it's nothing personal you know how it is you you know you you're if you're in a merger and you've been bought 
if somebody, if, if there's somebody from the buying company that does your job, you're out. If, yep. if at some point what you do doesn't serve the purpose of the new co, you're out. And it's not, again, it's nothing personal. It happens. It's, it sucks, but it happens. And Marcus goes, but, you know, we might have something for you. Because at that point, Alain, whom you've spoken to, who was the head of international, had decided that he didn't want to do that anymore. He wanted to work for CNR. Right. He wanted to work for the domestic label. He was interested in developing the domestic label. And that's the function of CNR as a brand, isn't it? It is domestic. Correct. Yeah. Well, CNR is a Dutch. It's a 50s, I think. I'm going to say 50s. It might be even 40s. It was a, it was a very old label. It was a Dutch label specializing in Dutch music. It had a huge Dutch repertoire. And Alain and Bob Voss and a number of other people from, 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 from the local company wanted to refresh that brand and, and take it to new heights, which was a very exciting project. Yeah. So Alain wanted to move there. And the position of, of, of head of international or VP of international, became, well, head of international became, became available. Now, what I didn't tell you is that I speak six languages. Well, I spoke five at the time. The reason being my father was in the Italian diplomatic service. So I've, I've traveled my entire life and I came back with, you know, five different languages. So I was poised for an international career from always. The, the CNR thing just happened because it was an opportunity that I took at that, at that particular juncture. Right. And so Marcus said, um, look, you know, Case, Case really likes you. He thinks, you know, he thinks you know what you're doing and, and, uh, and he wants to offer you a job, but you, you have, but the job is in Amsterdam. And I famously said, give me 20 minutes. And Marcus, Marcus said, I have to ask, why 20 minutes? Why not 20 days? Or, or you're going to need some time to think this through. And I said, no, 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 no. I need 20 minutes. And, and, and he says, well, can you tell me why? I said, yes, because my daughter is coming home from school in 20 minutes. I have to sit down with her. <laughs> you know? and, and I sat with my daughter and, and my wife, and we, you know, we, we looked at this thing. We wanted to have, you know, we wanted to have an international opportunity. And my daughter, who at the time was 13, 12, 12, I think. Yeah, she was 12. She, you know, she said to me, well, you know, you've traveled all your life. And I, I was born and raised in Rome and I haven't gone anywhere. So let's go. Let's do this. Cool. You know? Um, yeah. Pretty, pretty special for a 12-year-old. Definitely. Yeah. Um, and... Um, and so on the 7th of January, I took office, wow. I drove from Rome to Amsterdam, and I sat in this very chair. <laughs> this, is, this is my chair at Roadrunner. As if. But don't make him laugh. <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's, um, I, I, I have it here because when, when they dismantled the, the office, Marcus called and said, do you want to come and get some stuff? And I said, is my office still there? He goes, yeah, it is. So I took a van and... And uh, the desk I'm on and the chair I'm on were my original. Um, wow. Um, <laughs> Can we unpack so, the just some of the, the, the short followings of Arcade, just if, if you're aware of these things? Because we know that it is remarkably successful in its capacity as a pop compilation um, factory. 
but when Roadrunner steps in, that's when were the cracks emerging from that acquisition, or was it were there always cracks under the surface, and it just came up to surfaces? I think it was, it was it was a lab experiment that was doomed, that was poised to fail. I think the culture of the two companies' cultures were so vastly different. Right. Okay. That that it was you know in hindsight, and of course. 2020, but it was literally impossible to merge these two companies. One of the two had to kill the other. One of the two cultures had to prevail. Mm. And, and, and it wasn't hard to understand that Roadrunner's culture was going to prevail. Um, I think, I think I may be, I'm not sure if this, this is really completely accurate, but I can tell you that, 12 months into the acquisition, I think there was probably half a dozen people left, of which I was one, from the arcade side. Yep, yep. It became, extre- it became immediately apparent. They were spending humongous budgets on, on development acts. They were trying to break stuff. I mean, you know, the guy who was running the Swedish company came from Mercury, had major label you know, culture, ambition. So, you know, let's spend tens of thousands on a TV campaign for a brand new pop artist. You know, the Roadrunner culture was vastly different. It was, how the fuck do we break this band? We got no money. You know, five grand. And that's it. Five grand was a luxury. Are you kidding me? Pre-Nickelback? Pre-Nickelback changed everything, by the way. But pre-Nickelback? No, no way. You know, mm. it was like, um, so, so that's what happened. You know, the, the yeah. roadrunner culture just, just, it was impossible. And, and look, we, we, I, I think the catalog did, did what it needed to do. Case acquired the, you know, um, and he carried it through all the years. Um, it was recently sold to Andre de Raff and, and his publishing company. But this was what two years ago. So mm. it, he carried it for all these years, and it was it was the right thing to do in terms of catalog acquisitions and copyright acquisitions. Yeah, it was the wrong thing to do in terms of uh, acquiring uh, another label and thinking that we could work with that infrastructure. But again, hindsight is easy, you know. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think one of the things I've heard a couple of times is at the time one of the the big selling points for arcade was its international reach as in the physical real estate offices in pretty much every country you can imagine. So all of a sudden with the signing of that dotted line, Roadrunner was all of a sudden Indonesia. um, Sweet. No, listen, it was mainly Europe. There were offices in Spain. There was an off, there there were offices in Italy. There were offices like, you know, that was me. There were offices across countries in Scandinavia and Denmark and Sweden uh, in Norway, uh, there were there were yes, there was infrastructure in many places where where um, in many places where um, Roadrunner didn't have an infrastructure. Yeah. And uh, but like I said, about a year later, you know, in in by tw- let me put it this way: by two thousand two, there were no arcade offices left, none, not one. Mm-hmm. And, and there were a few employees, you know, that were left. So I'm at, at that point, it's now, you know, mid 2001, June, something like that. 
Roadrunner at that point goes through a corporate sort of, you know, adventure. I think that's the right word. Case sold half of the company to uh, Def Jam. Yep. Or as I like to put it, to Lior Cohen. Because Lior then took it with him when he left Def Jam and and went to Warner's. He orchestrated the 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 move of 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 Roadrunner from the Universal world to the Warner world. Yeah. But it's now 2002, and I'm sorry, it's it's now mid 2001, and Silver Side Up isn't out yet. And I meet. Chad Kruger and Ryan Peake in February 2001. I'd taken office three weeks prior, mm-hmm. promoting the state. Uh, yeah. Leader of Men was a single. So I, me- I met them pre Silver Side Up. Yeah. They were a band that was doing well in America. The state was doing you know, well by Roadrunner parameters. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were, you know, they were making headways in Europe, but it was, you know, it was nothing, uh, it was nothing to call home about, uh, to, to the point that, uh, you know, Chad famously likes Japanese restaurants and I took them out for dinner and he chose a teppanyaki restaurant. And when the bill came, I almost had a heart attack and I, and I paid it, I paid it with the corporate American express that I had just gotten that morning. And I went into, my CFO's office, Ian Flint, who has been tremendously important to me uh, professionally. He's, he's everything I know about, you know, budgets and P&Ls and Excel sheets I owe to him. And uh, I, walk into, I walked into his office and I said, listen, I'm, I think Case is going to fucking have a fit and fire me because I just spent you know, probably it was 1,200 euros or something stupid like that in, in a restaurant. And, and Ian, Ian had a laugh and said, don't worry about it. Just don't do it again. <laughs> <laughs> so when you, when, what was the expectation of Nickelback when you first walk in? Because it's interesting that it's mid-2001. The state has actually been out three years at that point. But there's a campaign no, going on. No expectations. They were just, they were coming over to promote, uh, to promote the state in Europe. And we were working Nickelback like we were working any other band. Right. So we're okay. you know, lining up press and you know, blah, 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 and, do, and doing all the things. There, there was no expectation. It was a band that we thought, you know, was a good band to work. There, there, it, 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 at that point, it was still, you know, another rock band. That that on the Roadrunner label, which was doing nicely, but not nothing, you know, particularly, you know, incredible. Yeah. So we are now at uh, so the the deal with Def Jam goes through, and and part of the deal was that Roadrunner would have a product manager within the Universal structure in in those countries where we didn't have an office. Okay. So we had offices in the UK, in Germany, in France at that point, and obviously in the Netherlands. So outside of those four countries, Universal was going to provide us with a project, with a product manager for the, for the Roadrunner catalog. Okay. Um, 
so that fell upon me as the VP of international. And so I spent a very long time in various countries across Europe um, to, to select the Roadrunner product manager to train he or she and, uh, and to get that structure up and running. So the idea was going to be that we were going to have a Roadrunner team in every country mm -hmm. uh, where we had our offices great. We had our offices where we didn't have our offices. We would have these product managers that would all report into me. Right. So, and into my department. Um, so as I'm doing this, you know, I'm spending time in Spain, I'm spending time in Italy, I'm spending time in Sweden, Norway, Denmark, and all of these countries. Now, you know, this, this is going to be, um, keep this in mind because this is, this is where, this is where the curveball of my career starts right here. It starts when I start doing this. I get sent out mm -hmm. to start, you know, doing, putting these, these teams together across Europe. Uh, and of course I get close with UMGI and the team, the, the international team in London, Max mm -hmm. Hole and, and all his team. And of course I get close to every universal country uh, label that I visit more than once, select the product manager, train the product manager, et cetera. Yeah. When, um, when Silver Side Up comes out, famously 9-11, yep. I'm in Milan. I'm sitting in the office of um, the sales director of Universal Italy. And that's where, that's where I see the second plane hitting. I think we all, all of us who were old enough to, to, to you know, to remember um, we all remember where we were when we saw the second plane hit and I was in his office and the TV was on. And, um, so my, at that point, Silver Side Up starts to literally explode. Now you have to think that it took time though. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing about this, and I wish you, I don't know if Hank is going to ever be, he's sort of, I'd, I'd have to talk to him and I will, but he has an email that if, if, if you get this documentary where we, we were discussing, you're going to need that email, right? Because we were all struggling. Everybody was struggling with, uh, with uh, how you remind me. Radio didn't want to hear about it. Um, mm -hmm. Press was like, yeah, yeah, these kids are, you know, this, it's okay. But you know. now in the meantime, they're doing great in America. Now all mm -hmm. of a sudden it's a gold record. It's on its way to plant, you know, it's, it's, it's happening in America. But okay. Europe is still, is still resisting it, particularly at radio. And Case sends this email to all of us where he basically says, I don't give a fuck what you think. This is a hit. This is the biggest hit that we will ever come across. And I don't care what you say. I don't care what your program directors say. 
I don't care if a radio in Timbuktu doesn't want to play this. You will get this on the radio. <laughs> wow. And it was that aggressive, you know. And Hank gave him a gold, a plaque with that email printed. Um, I think he might still have it. I, I hope he still has it. Uh, uh, he gave it to him, you know, two years later after seven million records or whatnot. Hank gave that to him. But the, the reaction, I remember the phone calls. That email, that email hits our inbox and just everybody goes ballistic, right? I get calls from Nora in Paris, who was the managing director of Paris. I get calls from Mark Palmer. I get calls from Hank. It's like, what the fuck? You know, what is, how, you know, what? unacceptable that he talks to us like this, you know, blah, 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 blah. It's like, but he just would not listen. He, there was, he, honestly, I've never seen him like that. Case has never been an easy man, right? Ever. And, and, and you get along with Case or you don't. You, you, it's, you, you see through his, you know, his, his heart and heart sides and you see through it and you're okay with it and you level with him. And then you can have a wonderful relationship, which I was blessed to have all along. Mm-hmm. But as much as I like the man, and I like him for a million reasons. He gave me an opportunity. My career started there. And I, whatever it is I've achieved to this day, I owe it to him. So I, I'm, I, I genuinely, I'm happy when I see him and we get along great. But I can tell you there's as many people who want to, who want to run him over with a car. They hate him. <laughs> and that's Case. Case has never, he, he, he's, he's never um, sort of... Uh, he, you're, you're never sort of lukewarm with Case. You either get him mm-hmm. and and you get his way and you kind of go, shit, you're fucking annoying me, but I get it and and and, and I'm going to work for you. We're going to do this together because you can see his vision, right? Mm-hmm. Or you don't. And and if you don't, just you, people, I've seen people really fucking go nuts. Anyways, he wouldn't have it, right? He would yeah. not have it. And... And he was right, you know, and, and um, the courage that this guy has had, he bet, he bet everything on this band, mm-hmm. everything. And I, and, and I, I'm not at liberty to obviously say things that are not relevant at this point in time. The company sure. was sold, et cetera, et cetera. But, but believe me when I tell you, the expression, all your eggs in one basket, is the euphemism of the century compared to what he did. <laughs> and you got to respect that, you know. And, and he was right. And then one after the other, radio started coming on board and this mm-hmm. thing took off. And we went from 20,000 units across Europe to 7 million Fuck. in a year. Wow. Uh, Jim, what a ride. I, I kid you not, if my career stopped today, I'd be fine with it. 
because I have had the blessing to be in one of those roller coasters. You, you can, the norm is you go an entire career and never come across something like that. That's the norm. And, um, and you know, I work with Nickelback to this day. Mm-hmm. It, it forged a relationship that went beyond anything that I've ever experienced with artists. And uh, <clears throat> um, the, at that point, my job was essentially split between, you know, managing the Nickelback process, which at that point became the top priority of the company. Yeah. Them and Slipknot, obviously. Because in the meantime, Slipknot, Slipknot had happened. And there was that as well. But I got closer to the Nickelback camp simply because they were just taking off. The whole company was behind this. We had to, right? There was so much at stake, and um, and I ended up and I ended up touring with them in 2002 um, because I was organizing promo at every you know at every stop, etc. And then I went out on tour with them and. Um, and there's there's so many stories that I that I that I could tell you and that I cherish. Um, you know, I, I went out as the label guy, obviously, and you know, the, you know how it is, right? You know, bands and you're the label guy, so yeah, you know. Um, you sit in the corner, yeah. Well, yeah, you don't actually. You have your own car because you're not sitting on the bus. <laughs> That's how it started. And then one night, uh, be, because I had. You know, because I had started my career years and years before that by pushing fly cases as a stagehand, mm-hmm. I noticed that uh, they were loading they, they were loading one of the trucks in the wrong order. I, I could see the fly I could see the fly cases going in in the wrong order, and I went to the tour manager and I said, um, "Don't don't mean to intrude, but you're going to have a problem tomorrow with that truck because they're loading the fly cases wrong." He kind of looked at me and said, fuck, you know about this shit. I said, don't worry about it. Just go check. I could be wrong, but I think they're loading them wrong. And and they were. And and then all of a sudden, I was not the label guy anymore. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, weight distribution is no fucking joke on those lorries. Fuck, yeah. I know, man. Uh, you know, it's 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 called LIFO, uh, last in, first out. Yeah. That's how you need to look. That's, that's how you need to push them in. Uh, yeah. So... Um, Right. So now, you know, at this point, um, it's, you know, it, it's 7 million albums later. It's fucking plaques all over the place. My, my storage room has, I don't know, 20 plaques uh, from, from, from all sorts of different countries. Uh, and it's been, at this point, it's an incredible ride. And at this point, Roadrunner is the most successful rock label of the planet at that point. Um, we've got Slipknot doing 2 million. We've got Nickelback doing seven. We've got, you know, the whole lot of the, you know, of the more metal stuff doing great. We've got bands, you know, Monty signing bands, you know, left, right and center, great music, great rock bands, great metal bands. But I think the success of Nickelback changed the face of the company. Mm-hmm. And it changed it completely because first of, we started going after 
more sort of, you know, what the Americans called active rock, you know, um, yeah. which, you would, you, which, you, which you would argue is more commercial rock, if you will. Mm-hmm. You know? Sure. Um, it was definitely bizarre for a band like Nickelback to be on the same label as a band like Slipknot. You know, that definitely was a complicated thing to navigate. But, but it became irrelevant at one point because, because it was fine, because we, we were capable at that point to continue to be credible in the metal world by yeah. continuing to sign great bands. We didn't just, you know, we, we, didn't, we didn't completely abandon sort of the, the, the battleground in terms of, you know, the, the more hardcore stuff and the metal and, and, and all that. But we added another line, if you will, to go after the more yeah. commercial stuff. How did that affect um, the relationship with the Universal? Because presumably they're... Uh, the, the, the phrase I've batted around the last few weeks is Universal were interested in Nickelback and Slipknot. They were happy to let Case and the rest of the guys manage the rest of the repertoire and catalog completely independently. So we've got Iowa and Silverside Oak coming out on the same, in the same year. 2002 swings around and presumably the PL sheets don't look quite as promising as they did before. Is there like a, is there a, a conflict there or is there a different agenda that's been deployed there? Is there a different conversation that's happening there? Because all of a sudden the, the landscape on which Rodan is operating is completely changed foundationally. Um, if that made sense. I, I- it does make sense, but it, it's it's too early for that question because at that point the acquisition has just happened. Universal are happy to leave us alone and do our things because we're successful, mm. um, and they don't understand metal. They never have. They don't plan on understanding metal anytime soon. Mm-hmm. So. Yes, they're interested in Slipknot because of the numbers. Yes, they're interested in, in Nickelback because they understand the music mm. and, of course, the numbers. But their interest is opening up their infrastructure to have to let us have more muscle. So all of a sudden, we have more commercial muscle. We have more marketing muscle. We have more of that. But the individual territories are continuing to operate in isolation. France, Germany, UK primarily, and the rest of Europe through me. So I had a double role. I was the VP of international, as in the coordinator of all the international marketing, but I was also the general manager of the other office, which was comprised of six or seven different universal companies. Yeah. Um, so, So we went through the setup of the long road, which was the follow up to Silver Side Up. And, and then, and then the curveball I was telling you about happened. Um, I was offered a job at Universal. Okay. It's now 2004. Long Road is 2003, I believe. Yeah. Okay. So I set up, I set up the Long Road. Mm -hmm. I do the whole setup. I go to Vancouver for the press setup, for the international press setup and interviews and all that. And in the meantime, Universal Italy offers me a job. Okay. To which I said no three times. 
and eventually the offer got stupid. And you know, you know when you, you know when you say thing, you know when you say it's too good to be true. Yeah. Well, generally it is too good to be true. But I fell for it, and I fell for it for a number of reasons. Um, part of it was the prodigal son going back to his home country. You have to remember that back in that time, in the mid '90s, as I was telling you earlier, if you didn't, if you worked for an independent label, you were a loser. You were a guy. You, you were a guy who couldn't get a job at a real record company, so you were working for independence. Independence became the cool thing a lot later. Yeah. Right. Um, and it just got to my head. I, I, I was being offered the general manager position for the domestic company for so I was going to run essentially the biggest Italian uh, uh, domestic label. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I was going to be a general manager at Universal and it got to my head. Yeah. And I thought, you know, and so I left. And um, the interesting bit is that nobody wanted me to leave. Case actually said to me, you know, they can't do that, right? They can't poach my executives. It's part of the deal. Wow. And, but he said, but if this is what you want, I won't stand in your way. You sure this is what you want? I said, "Yeah." And he says, "Fine." Then I won't. Then I won't stand in your way. Mm-hmm. Which I thought was really gracious of him. Um, I spoke to Nickelback, who said, "We hate it, um, but we understand. You got to do what you got to." You know. And I'll make this short. I left, and I and and uh, it was the biggest mistake of my career. Mm-hmm. Um, six months into it, it, it was horrific, horrendous. I had completely made, we both made mistakes. I completely underestimated going from an international massive success story where I was overseeing a world global campaign to a, to a domestic label of a B market. Mm-hmm. I completely underestimated that. All of a sudden, my horizon had just shrunk from global to a B market. Yeah. I wasn't the GM of Universal UK or Germany or France. I was the GM of Universal Italy. Big fucking deal, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so I started choking. I was just like, you know, and I found myself prioritizing the international artists. I work with Zucchero. I work with, you know, all the, the, the artists that, that, the Italian artists that had an international career. Mm-hmm. And from Universal side, they completely underestimated that I was incapable of um, accepting the ways of doing things and the culture of a major, of a major label. It just wasn't possible for me. I, I just, you know, the way they were doing business, the way they were signing artists, the way they were dealing with the artists, it was just, it was just so not hmm. how I wanted to do it that we started, we clashed three months in. And, and after three, you know, three months in, you go, okay, fine. It's, you know, it's growing pains. I'll figure it out. You know, six months in, you're like, okay, I can do better. You know, nine months in, you go, this isn't working. Yeah. And, and, um, and, 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 and I was out. 
Um, and so, you know, nine months after leaving Roadrunner uh, for this big universal, you know, career, because, you know, I wanted to be Lucien Grange. I didn't want to, uh, you know, uh, my, my, my idea in the back of my head was I'll do four or five years at Universal Italy and then I'll move, I'll make my moves to go work at International in London. That's what I wanted to do. But, you know, life doesn't always turn out the way you plan it. Yeah. And, uh, and so I, I came away from there very distressed because I had literally just fucked my career. Case and I went for lunch and he said, I can't give you your job back. And I said, Case, I'm not asking you to. But we had a, it was a very difficult lunch. We said, I didn't want you to leave. What the fuck did you have to leave? I said, because we make mistakes. You know, and uh, he helped me out, gave me, you know, some consultancy, some small things so that I could, you know, just keep, keep doing things. And then the miracle happened. About six months after that, um, I get a call from um, Mike Kruger. And Mike goes, what the fuck happened? Mm. And I was like... Dude, it's great for you to call, and I appreciate it, but you really want to know? And he goes, yeah, I want to know. And I went, look, it's, it's a long story, and, and I don't think you have time for this. And, and I was very depressed, obviously, as you can imagine. And, I, you know, it was my own doing. Nobody, nobody did anything. It was my own. I had just broken the greatest, you know, toy I'd ever had to play with. Uh, and Mike said, okay, here's what, here's what we're going to do. You're going to get your ass on a plane and you're going to come to LA because we're playing the Greek next week. So I want to hear, I said, Mike, seriously, dude. I mean, he goes, yeah, seriously, get your fucking ass on a plane. I don't want to hear anything. So I went to my wife and I, I should remarry her just for that. Cause I said, Hey, you, you know, that very little amount of money that we have, um, I'm going to spend a chunk of it to go to Los Angeles to, to talk to Mike. And she looked at me and she said, go book your ticket. What are you waiting for? Go, you know? And I went and I sat with Mike and I told him the whole story. And he looked at me and he said, okay, here's what's going to happen. You're going to stop stressing the fuck out. And you're going to come, you're going to come work for us. And I said, okay, but you have an international marketing guy at the label, which was Wally. Mm -hmm. And Mike said, that's exactly right. At the label. I was like, okay, so what are you saying? That you want somebody with that expertise working for you and not for the label? He goes, exactly right. You know where the bodies are buried. You've been instrumental to us getting to where we are. I don't want anybody messing with our stuff. You need to be on, on this thing. Mm -hmm. And they, they single-handedly saved my career. Wow. No doubt. Because at that point, it was late in the cycle of uh, all the right reasons. I'm sorry, of, of, of the long road. Mm -hmm. And all the right reasons was about to come out. And that's, you know? take, take, take the success this far and double it. And exactly. Yeah. And I then joined their management team. 
So I started working with Brian Coleman and Brad Russom. And uh, I still work with them to this day. So 20, how? 21 years later. That's awesome. That's an arc. Oh, listen, Jim, I, I will forever be great. I will jump through fire for this band. Hmm. They did what very few bands do. Very few. I, I don't know of any other. I mean, I'm sure there are out there great people. Uh, you know, Dave Grohl seems to be, from all accounts, one of those people. Uh, I've never met him, but um, they, they, I, I was dead in the water, buddy. I was dead in the water. Wow. Because I was now 40. For, it was 2005. Is, so I was, uh, I was 42. Um, had, you know, had lost a VP job and a general manager job in the space mm-hmm. of a year. Um, headhunters were telling me to downplay my CV if I wanted to get back in. Fuck. Uh, oh yeah, they were very clear to me. They said nobody's going to hire you. You're 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 in your you're in your early forties. You're going to cost a lot of money. The industry was starting to feel the pressure of, you know, pirates. Well, they were starting to feel the pressure of what then became, you know, the the, the decade of disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, Nobody was interested in my CV outside of the music industry because that's all I've, this is all I've ever done my entire life. Sure. So no other company saw any, my experience as, you know, maybe television would have, maybe, you know, uh, but the transition was not easy. Mm. And if I wanted to get back into the industry, I've had two headhunters say to me, if you want a chance, you have to down, you, you have to downplay your CV because otherwise crazy. you're not going to. Take a pay cut and down and uh, take a massive pay cut and downplay your CV, which means starting 10 years before, you know, back to where you were 10 years prior. Mm. So, so when they came along, they, they literally saved my career because at that point they gave me the space and the money to be able to not lose my house, make my payments be involved in the, you know, into what became a massive success, you know, as, as silver, as, uh, um, all the right reasons and then dark horse and, and, and then whatever else. Um, and, uh, and, and that, you know, I worked for two album cycles just for them. I wasn't doing anything else. Mm-hmm. And then somebody else came along and said, Hey, you know, can you help me out for this international release that we have, et cetera. So, and then, you know, then, um, my career then took that turn and morphed and evolved into what I have today, which is this promotion company, et cetera. But um, yeah, and I still work for them. Um, so they, they've now, uh, last year, they've, um, they've parted ways with Brian Coleman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, but they retained uh, Brad Rusa and myself who were, were both uh, part of the management team. Uh, I, I get to work with them when they tour X North America. So when they come over here, so, uh, but, um, but yeah, they're, you know, they, they are very, very, very special to me as you now understand. 
So when you Sorry, have to I, I, I digressed into that again, nobody's going to care about this. this no, is this has led into a very interesting perspective, though, because all of a sudden you're no longer representing the interest of the label. You're representing the interests of the band. So now my, this is the question that you were prepared, prepared for because I wasn't prepared for it. How did those conflict? Because you'd presume that the interests of the label were the interests of the band and vice versa. So how does that no, work? Very, I was very clear that they, they weren't. Very clear. Even when I was working for them on the label side. Part of the reason that we developed the relationship that we developed was because I believed, and, 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 and I have to give it again, to Case, who let me do this, because, you know, he, he, he could have just as well given me different instructions that I would have had to stick to, because he was my boss. I, re I reported directly to him. But Case was, in that respect, he, if you earned his trust, he would let you run with it. Mm -hmm. um, um, one of the things that I like the most about Case is that he doesn't, he, if he trusts you, and he calls you to do something, he's not going to, at the same time, tell you how to do it. Mm -hmm. But that comes, but that's a be careful what you wish for moment because he'll be waiting for you at the end of the road. And you better, you better, you better have the results that, that he wants. Uh, otherwise, you know, there's no uh, real, you know, he, it's, it's a trade-off. You, you know, yes. you want to do it this way? Fine, you go and do it this way. At the end of the road, this is what I want. How you get it, it's up to you, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and so it was very, very clear to me that the interest of the label and the interest of a band, um, they, they have very large areas of juxtaposition, or juxtaposition, whatever the word is, of, of, yeah. of overlapping. Yeah. Uh, but there are quite a number of areas where they don't and okay. how you navigate that is is really the is, is really what defines i think in my humble opinion is what defines a a, a a label executive and then later on a manager or i was never their manager brian coleman was their manager but i was part of the management team mm -hmm. and as such i had specific responsibilities in terms of promotions and marketing and I think that uh, Mike's intuition was exactly that. He understood that there were going to be moments where he needed the advice from somebody that understood the label. Um, you know, his way of saying it when he said, you know where the bodies are buried, he, he, this is what he was saying. You know where the pitfalls are. You know what the label is going to do. When we want certain things and and these things conflict with what they want, you're going to know what the label's position is going to be and why. Yeah. And you're going to be able to help us navigate that. Mm -hmm. And and that's exactly what I did. I mean, you know, <clears throat> the uh, transparency has always been the way I, I chose to operate simply because I'm a bad liar. I, I'm a terrible liar. Mm -hmm. I couldn't lie if my life depended on it. You'd see it on my face. And, 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 and so I opted out of necessity to just say it as it is. And, and, and if it's not okay, then we deal with it. But um, yeah, first time I met Mike, they, they sent me to Montreal because he was uh, concerned about some international stuff. Um, you know, it was, I think it was, they were still playing the state. It was in a club, right? 
and 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 I go backstage and we're introduced and I said, you know, uh, hi, I'm the I'm the new guy for international and Mike goes on a rant for like 10 minutes about how this wasn't working and that wasn't working and this and that because Mike's always been the sort of business guy in the band. Yeah. Um, you know, very not aggressive because he's because because he's not an aggressive man, but very forceful, you know, very, very strong. Right? Stern. Stern, yes. And and uh, I don't know what what I don't know what overcame me, but when when he paused, I went, Are you done? You know, and 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 you know, this kind of threw him aback and he went, Yeah, I'm done. I said, Great, now give me six months. I just joined. You know, I I took everything in. So how about you stop bitching for the next six months and let me do my job? And then in six months, if things are not where you want them to, then you can get my ass fired or we can discuss this, but give me time. And Mike went, okay. That was the end of it. That was, that was my friendship with Mike was forged on that day. You know, he, he, he said one word, okay, that was it. And, and so when I took the other side, when I, when I joined them, it wasn't antagonistic. I wasn't all of a sudden going to be the, you know, the hard ass on the label. That's not yeah. what this was about. It was about having the knowledge to navigate those areas where interests didn't align. Mm-hmm. And Brian Coleman's management style was never, you know, he wasn't the old school managers who, you know, are aggressive and bang their fist on the table. And that's how you're a manager. He had a completely different management style, which really worked well with me as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so if that answers your question, no, but yes, totally. and, and, I, and I've done that for, from that moment, that's, that, that's where my career went. That's how I develop, uh, you know, a, 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 and that's what I continue to do to this day is, is to, you know, um, put this expertise, uh, to, to good use for, for acts that, um, need it, that need it. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Let's, um, let's bring this, this train into the station then Paolo. Um, I'm sorry. Was there, were, are there more sort of roadrunner, you know, company things that you wanted to talk about? Cause I kind of derailed this into no, my right. own sort of world. The only thing that hasn't been directly addressed, but you have addressed it in part, uh, in part, is when you arrived at Roadrunner, what was your initial impression, observations, or concerns? Were you overwhelmed with the infrastructure? Were you underwhelmed? The first meeting we had, Case introduced me to everybody saying, this is Paolo, the new international guy. That was his... <laughs> I was the international guy, you know. And, capital uh, G on guy. Yeah, yeah, capital G. No, in cases world, not even. No, it was just, <laughs> you know, this is our new international guy, you know. And uh, I, I guess I, I guess I realized very quickly that you could make your job pretty much what you wanted it to be. So. Um, I wasn't particularly overwhelmed or underwhelmed with the infrastructure. The infrastructure was in line with what I expected of a company of that size with offices sure. around the world. There were, you know, so there was another, there, there, there was a lack of systems. That's for sure. I created the ever first roadrunner intranet. Um, awesome. I mean, a li- I, this is like a, a recent revelation of mine. 
and it speaks directly somebody, to the workflow. Somebody told you about the intranet? It was Ro Coley not two or three weeks ago. And since then, I've been trying to contact the IT guys like Sean uh, McGoldrick and things like that. Yeah. I created one. As that, was my idea. <laughs> that was my idea. That was my idea. What and, gap were you uh, trying to fill with that? Well, I created that because, and yes, Sean McGoldrick and uh, Rich and, you know, everybody else in the U.S. who who actually, you know, developed it because they were the IT guys, right? Mm-hmm. But I started, so here's what would happen. Um, the reports from the markets, right, would come in these ridiculous different formats. <clears throat> somebody would send a Word document. Somebody would send, and, and the ones I hated the most were the ones that were sending reports in an Excel sheet because it's a grid. Yeah. Right? So it's, and it's like, that's not what you use Excel for. Oh, but it's, you know, but the grid is handy, you know? Mm-hmm. And then you would take forever to compile all of that in a comprehensive report and then you need to send to management and to the artists, you know. Um, it was a pain in the ass. And and also we had all these, you know, the repertoire owners would, you know, send pictures and, and there was there were assets. Where were these these assets were sitting on drives and emails and it was just I just couldn't make sense of all of that. And I, and I just, one day I just went, I think I was talking to Sean in New York. I can't remember. I can't remember that. But at one point I said, can we not have like a place where everybody can access files? Files can be uploaded. Files can be downloaded. People have access to, to, you know, to things. We divided project by project. We put reporting in there. This went well. This, you know, radio doesn't give a shit. Or yes, we're going to get this played. You know, can we have something like that? And I think Rich and Sean kind of went, yeah, you know, and that evolved over time into the first ever intranet. You might want to also know, but this is again personal, so nobody's going to care. Uh, I was one of my first gigs after Roadrunner, while I was working with Nickelback, was Century Media. Yep. Oliver Wittuft, the late Oliver Wittuft and, and Robert Kampf, both called me to say, we're a German metal label with people around the world that do stuff. Can you help us create an international setup for this? And what's the first thing that I did? I created the intranet for Century Media, which, Holy shit. you know, uh, uh, and then, and that evolved, you know? Um, so yeah, that, I, I was the one who did that. And, and, and it was out of frustration because we needed a place where everybody could sort of, you know, uh, it was the first, oh God, it must've been 2002, three, something like that. So yeah. uh, 20 years ago, man. So, you know, it, it was the early days of, you know, collaborative, um, you know, you've got teams now and Slack and, 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 you know, and, and whatnot, you don't need that anymore today. Uh, but, but, uh, there was none of that at the time. Yeah. That's crazy. That's insane. And it I is important. Have, I know you say, I should, it's have, like- I should have gone to uh, Silicon Valley, you know, <laughs>
<laughs> you know, I know you say it's you know, it's personal career stuff and no one gives a shit, but you've got to remember that for the 200, 250 people that worked at Roadrunner, there's also millions and millions of people who are slogging away like in IT and things now who would be impressed at the prospect of that kind of innovation on that kind of scale, which shaved the seconds off the administrative tasks. It is, yeah. it, it is important. I think anyway. Yeah, it was a, it was a wonderful project. It was so in, uh, innovative at the time. It was just like, you know, we were so proud of this little thing. You know? It was cool. That's awesome. That's awesome. Okay, bringing bringing it sort to the end is the big sort of vague question. What what do you consider the legacy of the label to be? In your own words. Listen, I I think that. Roadrunner Records was, uh, I'm going to say was, and I'll justify why I'm saying was, but was just the most iconic, successful rock and metal label of all times, period. Mm -hmm. And I was, you know, and any one of us who's been a part of it at any point in its making, you know, in the 80s, in the 90s, in the year 2000, you know, anyone who was ever a part of the, whatever, near 30 years before it got sold off. Yeah. Um, I think we have a bond. Uh, and I think, um, and I think we, I think we underestimate what we did, all of us, because it's the nature of that label. We weren't you know, none of us were these big, I mean, we don't brag about it. it. It was, hey, we were a little metal label. That's, you know, we were the underdogs. And, and, and even when we were selling 10, 12, 13, 15 million, you know, units, we were still this underdog. In, in our mindset, we were the underdogs that got lucky. You know, that's how we all felt. But that's, that wasn't true. We didn't get lucky. We, we, we knew what we were doing. Um, so, yeah, and I said was because unfortunately, although I have to, I, I have to respect the people that are, you know, the few people that are still working the Roadrunner imprint at Warner's. Um, Dave Rath is one of them that comes to mind who uh, was probably one of the best A&R coordinators ever to walk the earth. He's an amazing guy and he's such a company man. He's, he's dedicated to that he's dedicated his, his entire professional life to that brand yeah. and he's kept the flame, you know, uh, a light uh, in the, in the Warner system. But unfortunately, and, and, you know, I, I would have, you know, the, the old me would have, would have had harsher words about it, but I'm now, I have enough experience to know that that's just how it happens. You know, Warner just bought it, you know, sort of, incorporated it into its multiple brands and it's got iconic brands, yeah. iconic labels under the Warner system. So I think if there was a major that, you know, it, Warner was probably the best major for Roadrunner to end up in because Warner still has some level of recognition of, you know, history and brand. They don't completely obliterate, you know, typical major acquisition is they buy a label for what they do next thing they do they dismantle it yeah. you know let's buy this label because they really know how to work how to work metal phase two let's fire all the people that know how to work metal you know because it doesn't make any financial sense 
but but um, it's just the way it goes. And and I think Warner have tried uh, to keep the flame alive. You know, uh, they have fueled by Raymond, which obviously is is there, there's a there's a there's a connection there. And and I think Roadrunner still means something to this day, but not you know again i was lucky to probably be at the peak of the company's career and um you know live through its demise but it's um it's an amazing legacy and uh, it doesn't matter if the corporate entity has now merged somewhere else yeah i think the legacy is there and um and i'm super proud to be a part of it Best day at the label, worst day at the label. Easy. My first day, the best day. My last day, the worst day. <laughs> Very easy. I think if we would talk about the best and worst days of the company itself, it would differ drastically between each person. It should be. In fact, yeah, go for it. What do you think was the, was the best day of the label, the label's history? I, I don't know. I, I think... Um... I don't know. I think uh, I, 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 I think I think the best day was realizing that Case's vision was actually real. All of a sudden, yeah, you know yeah. Um, that that email that is now framed. Yes, that email that is now framed. You have to get a hold of that email. I think you know it's it's. Um, it's an incredible story and, and kudos to Hank for thinking he, he created a plaque like a, you know, like a gold disc plaque and, and, and gave it to Case uh, yeah. in, in one particular event where we were celebrating, I think it was Christmas or something, Lior was at the table as well and, and Case got up and, and Hank got up and gave this to Case. Um, you should try and dig it out. Somebody must have it. Somewhere. It Someone will. It a server somewhere in a cellar at the old office. I will find it. <laughs> I proved remarkably resourceful in this regard. Well, you got to me, didn't you? <laughs> Eventually. <laughs> Eventually, exactly. Tell me about the, the poster behind you. Oh, yes. So, um, first time I, 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 I go to the New York office, um, the president of the company, Jonas Naxon, uh, I walk into his office to be introduced and, and I sit down and, uh, in front of his desk and he's got this uh, behind him. Mm -hmm. And my first words to him was, pretty cool, huh? B big fan. And he goes, really? You're, you're, you're a, he goes, you're a, you're a Clash fan? I go, fuck yeah. And um, we talked about the Clash for 45 minutes. And, uh, and then, uh, then I left and on my birthday that year, he sent me the same poster. And it's and it's uh, it's uh, it's signed behind him. It says from one fan to another. And I've had this behind me ever since. Wherever I go, whatever office I take, you know, behind me, this has to be up. Uh, and, and you know, so uh, yeah, it was. Uh, he, he's become a good friend. He's the general manager of um, Spine Farm. Yeah.